Amen. You can be seated. My name is John Nugent. I'm the youth minister here filling in for Dr. Reggie today, and I'm excited to be with you. We are going to look at a story. Before we get there, though, I need to ask you this. Um, do you remember, for those of you with a significant loved one, whether it be your girlfriend or your boyfriend, maybe you're married, maybe you're engaged. There's been a lot of engagements lately, at least it seems that way. Maybe it's because I've, like, this is like year number 20 of youth ministry for me. And all these kids that I've had in youth ministry, like they're all growing up and getting married and having kids and it's kind of weird. Um, but I've seen lots of engagement. Do you remember those three little words that you, when, when you heard them from that one that you loved? I want to tell you a story, ready? But Lee is my wife and I want to tell you a story about one of those times that like distinctly sticks out those three little words. So once upon a time, uh, she was a student here at Louisiana Tech University, um, and she was in graphic design. And what they did, uh, they were, were able to spend about a month, a little over a month, um, in Paris, France. Uh, so she had the opportunity to do that, so she loaded up and flew across the ocean away from me on purpose. Which made me doubt things a little bit. But I knew that I loved her, and her being away, I knew, hey, you know what? I, 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 I need her in my life. I want to spend the rest of my life with this girl. So while she was gone, which made things a little bit easier, I went, went to Alexandria, Louisiana. I sat down in the living room of her house with her mother and father and said, hey, I'd like to marry your daughter. Is that okay with you? They surprisingly said yes. Um, and so then I went, I bought a ring. I had all those things done. Like everything was great and wonderful and perfect. Got that. It, it was wonderful. Um, and so everything was set. When she came back, um, I'd originally planned like this is going to happen on this date. But when she came back, I was like, nope, I'm not waiting until then. It's going to happen. So I called some, some friends of mine who worked at a place called Creekwood Gardens, which is over, I think it's a Simsboro address, but it's kind of Arcadia-ish. It's, it's a gardens. Um, they have a little lake out there. They had a dock out on the lake. And at the time, it was covered with roses. And I thought, what a great place to ask this girl to be my wife. So I had everything set up, told them we were coming. Everything was great. They were like, look, we'll clear it. Every, no one else will be there. Like, perfect. So we, we get the day has come. I've got ring in my pocket. Um, I, I pick up Lee. We go by Kentucky Fried Chicken. Uh, we pick up supper. You can't let her know what's going to happen. Like you got to keep things a surprise. You couldn't like go overboard with dinner because then don't judge me. So we took our, our Kentucky Fried Chicken, all right, and uh, so we're there, we're driving the 20 minutes out there to the place, which was dumb because then our Kentucky Fried Chicken is cold, and uh, anyway, we get out there, uh, we drive up to the gate that's there, and it's locked. And I thought, you mean people have forgotten this important day of my life. Lee, come here, let me give you a boost. She's like, why are you so determined to get into this? It's locked. We can't go. This is trust. Get over here. <laughs> so hoisted her up over the gate. I went over Kentucky Fried Chicken, got out onto the she said, Oh, this is nice. This is pretty. So we're there eating our Kentucky Fried Chicken. Um, and, and the moment is coming like, all right. So I have a gift for her. I give her this box. She opens it up. Inside the box is a book. Um, that I've made. Sort of scrapbookish, except I'm not that girly, so book. Inside the book um, are lots of things. Um, it began with, there were movie tickets from a Scooby-Doo cartoon movie, which is what we went to see on our first date. So I had those tickets. I put them in the book and wrote this little message about our first date. 
We went through, going through the book, there's things from BCM formals, there's things from concerts, there's things from all kinds of different stuff that, that we've done together, things where she came and, and endured me preaching, like all kinds of different stuff that we had done together in the book with little notes and things and, and things written out about how wonderful it was, you know, our time together. At the end of the book, um, I had taken a, a page out of a prayer journal that I kept um, because I, if you're like me, like I have to write things down sometimes when I'm praying. If not, I'll start praying and then all of a sudden I'm thinking about Kentucky Fried Chicken instead of praying. So I have to write things down, it keeps me focused. And so one of the prayers I had written before this event, like months before the event, was a prayer that went something along the lines of, God, I really love this girl. And if there's any way possible, could you please work it out where we could get married? I want to spend the rest of my life with her. I thought, surely she'll read to there, get to that she'll know what's coming. So she's there, I noticed this. Um, she's there, she's reading and tears filling her eyes. I'm like, okay, I hope those are happy tears. Um, and so I get down on my knee, I got a ring, I got everything, she's done, finished, closes the book. Leah, I want to spend the rest of my life with you, will you marry me? And it's then that I heard those three little words that stick out to me. Are you sure? <laughs> and I thought to myself, well, um, I've gone through relative great lengths uh, to make just this day happen. Um, I'm on a knee, ring, pretty sure. Um, I'm, I'm quite certain. And then she said yes, and, and everything was great and wonderful. But, but it's not really the response you want, gentlemen. Um, I'm just going to throw that out there. For, and ladies, when, when someone eventually proposes to you, if you're going to say yes, eventually, just go ahead and do it up front. Um, no, leave, leave no, no room for like questions and things, all right? I want this morning to, to kind of explore that idea with you of are you sure? Are you certain? Specifically about your relationship with Jesus Christ. Are you certain that God is worth following? And then as we look at that, I want to also look at these other, this other three-word phrase that action follows certainty. When you and I are sure about something, then we have no problem acting on that certainty. If I'm sure that a chair will hold me up, I will sit in the chair. If I'm sure that I'm friends with you, I'll do that. George earlier was certain that Corky was waving at him. And so acting on that certainty, he waved. She was not waving at him. But we act on certainty. You with me? So we're going to look at those kind of phrases together. We're going to look through Judges chapter 4. We're going to read most of it together. Um, stop along the way, talk about things. Um, if you've never been with me before and, and listened to me preach, then um, you, you have to kind of bear with me a little bit. I like to use my imagination, specifically with Old Testament, all of it really, but Old Testament stories for sure. So I'm going to ask you every once in a while, we're going to stop together. I'm going to make sure that your imagination matches up with my imagination. Okay? So Judges chapter 4, we're going to start there. It says this, also before preface, ready? If you make fun of me for the way that I pronounce these words, then <clears throat> verse one, the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. So Ehud, let's go there real quick, ready? Ehud was um, a judge before um, Deborah. Deborah is going to be the judge in this story. It's the book of Judges. They're not kings. They're not queens. They're 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 political, they're spiritual, uh, they're military, they're judicial. Uh, they kind of serve lots of different roles. They kind of lead the people in lots of different ways. All right. But Ehud, he's died. 
If you want a really fun story, then skip back. But not while we're reading today, but the Ehud story is really good. All right, so, but then here we are, he's dead. And so here's what happens, ready? Verse two, the Lord sold them into the Lord, the Lord, the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, the king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. The commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Harasheth Hagoim. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help, for he had 900 chariots of iron, and he oppressed the people of Israel cruelly for 20 years. Now let's stop there for a second. Here's what's happened. Ready? The people of Israel have done evil in the sight of the Lord again, is what the Bible tells us. What happens throughout the book of Judges, and really throughout the whole nation of Israel's history, is that they kind of go through waves, where there's someone leading, and they're great, and they're wonderful, and people are following the Lord, but when that person goes away, then it is back to evil. Following what they want, they become selfish, they want to do what they want to do, and they become wrapped up in sin again. And God, most of the time, says, all right, if that's the way that you want to be, here is my discipline for you. Because the Lord disciplines those that he loves, he says, here, I'm going to do this so that you will then turn back to me. He sells them into the hand of this Jabin, who is king of Canaan, and he has a man named Sisera who is over his army. And he is, he is oppressing the people of Israel for 20 years. And then it, at least to me, it reads like this, that, that then after 20 years, they turn and they ask God for help. Why 20 years? Why not like 20 days, 20 minutes? Like why so long? I think it's because the nation of Israel is, is like me. Maybe you too. I, I'm here like, this, this is me telling you, ready? I'm, I'm terrible at apologizing. I don't like to apologize most of the time because I'm not wrong, but even when I am, I don't like to apologize. I'm terrible at it. My wife would probably tell you that. But then on top of that, if I have to apologize for something that I've done and then turn around and ask the person that I've apologized to for help, it's going to be about 20 years before that happens because that's how stubborn I am. And that's kind of what's going on here. They're living in their sin and in their rebellion for 20 years before they ask for help. It's, it's like potty training the third child in your family. Who when you ask them, hey buddy, look, it's time for, for you to poop on the potty. Like it is, it's past time for that really. And he looks at you dead in the face when you say, why do you poop in your pants? And he says, I like it. <laughs> That's what's going on here. The people are like 20 years living in sin. I'm good with it. I like it. Until finally they come to the point where like, all right, what we're doing is wrong and we need God's help. So they're asking for God's help, and here's what God does. Because when you and I come to God, God responds every time. Verse 4, now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lipidoth, was judging Israel at the time. She used to sit under the palm of, palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. And the people of Israel came up to her for judgment. She sent and summoned Barak, the son of Abinoam, from Kadesh Nephtali and said to him, has not the Lord, the God of Israel commanded you, go gather your men at Mount Tabor, asking 10,000 
from the people of Naphtali and the people of Zebulun, and I will draw out Sisera, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you by the river Kishon with his chariots and his troops, and I will give him into your hand. Barak said to her, If you'll go with me, I'll go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. And she said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. And then Deborah arose and went with Barak to Kadesh. And Barak called out Zebulun and Naphtali to Kadesh, and 10,000 men went up at his heels, and Deborah went up with him. Now, again, if you're using your imagination with me, I don't really know how this happens, but I imagine like they talk about this, this palm tree thing of, of Deborah um, and her sitting there. I don't know what that's like, but in my head, she's there dressed royally because, you know, she's judging the nation of Israel. Um, and this leader of the army comes up to her and starts, you know, trying to figure all this out. And Deborah asks the question, look, we need help, but you, oh leader of the army, dude, hasn't God already, like this is a past tense question, hasn't God already told you what to do? Hasn't he already told you to get help from these people and these people, get 10,000 people, go to this place and meet this guy and have your battle? It's a past tense, like, hasn't God already told you this? She's a prophetess. She knows these things. God speaks to her, right? And he says, in uncertainty, because God's already told him based on the question. And then he says, on top of that, well, I'll go if you go with me. Like a woman going to the bathroom, right? Like, I'll, I'll go if there's another girl. I don't understand that still. But he's like, hey, I, I don't, what he's really doing is saying, I'll go, but you're going to go with me so that in case things go wrong, in case things go badly, you'll get the blame instead of me because you're really the leader of this nation. So you have to go with me. It's, he knows what God's commanded, but he's still uncertain. He does not want to act. Deborah, on the other hand, at least in my mind, she's, she's there and seated, and she's like, all right, I'll go with you. But a woman is the one who's going to get the credit for the win of this battle. She flicks her hair and gets up and walks out. It's kind of what happens. I don't know about the hair flicking, but like she basically tells them that and gets up and goes. Now, what you would think would be she's the one that's going to get the credit for this. But if you know God's word well, you know that God sometimes uses people in authority. But more often than not, God uses unlikely people for his glory. So spoiler alert, it's not even going to be her. So let's get to the rest of the story. Ready? Verse 11. This one's kind of stuck in there, but we're going to see why. Ready? It says, Now Heber, the Kenite, had separated from the Kenites the descendants of Hobab, the father-in-law of Moses, and had pitched his tent as far away as the oak in Zanim, which is near Kadesh. I don't know how to pronounce that Z word. I just went with it. Okay? So he's there at the oak, which this is weird to me. Do you ever notice how sometimes in the Old Testament they're like these trees? At least we've got two. She sits under a tree, and he pitched his tent by the oak. I have several oak trees in my yard. How do we know because they don't live in North Louisiana. There's only a few trees around there, right? So they're there. He's like, I have we know that this tree is away from where God's people is. 
He has separated himself from Hobab's family, which is the in-laws of Moses, which they'd still be friendly to the Israel. They're not Israelites, but they're still kind of aligned in allegiance with the nation of Israel because of Moses. So he said, I'm part of that family, but the Israelites, they got taken over. They've been sold over to this other country. They're not the winners anymore. I'm going to align myself kind of with them. I still kind of want to stay in the family, but I'm just going to move over a little bit over here so that it looks like I can not really be friends with them, but I'm now going to be friends with Canaan and the king of Canaan. That way I'm safe in case something really goes bad. I got my family over here on this side, but I'm also safe over here because I'm over here on this side. I got my allegiance over here. Like, I should be good either way. And he's, he's really just kind of a coward and really selfish. It's, he reminds me of, of, the, of the cultural Christian, the kind of, of a person who would say that they are a Christian, but in all reality, they're not. They may go to church, they may live in the Bible belt like you and I live, and there's probably people all around you that probably say that they're a Christian, but there's no evidence for that in their life. They may say that they're a Christian, but it's because they know Bible stories, or maybe they've been to church a few times, but they don't really have a relationship with Jesus Christ. They've never put their faith in Jesus Christ to be their Savior. They say that they are, but it's never really happened. That's kind of the picture that we get with Heber. Where, oh yeah, I'm with the people of Israel, but in all reality, my allegiance is over here with the enemy. Oh yeah, I love Jesus and I love going to church, but in all reality, man, I'm perfectly okay being over here with the enemy and doing things of the world and doing the things that I know aren't really right. I'm okay with that, comfortable there. I like it. That's where he is. It's weird though. Like he's like a character that just gets like shoved into the story. Everything's about like Deborah and, and, and Barak and Sisera and there's about to be a battle and then, oh, by the way, Heber, but we'll, we'll come back to him. So let's get to the battle, right? Um, verse 12, when Sisera told that Barak, the son of Abinoam, had gone up to Mount Tabor, Sisera called out his chariots, 900 chariots of iron, and all the men who were with him from Harasheth Hagoim to the river Kishon. And Deborah said to Barak, up. For this is the day in which the Lord has given Sisera into your hand. Does not the Lord go out before you? So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. And the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his army before Barak by the edge of the sword. And Sisera got down from his chariot and fled away on foot. Barak pursued the chariots and the army to Harasheth Hagoim, and all the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword. Not a man was left. So God does exactly what God has been telling Barak, what he's told Deborah, what he said at least, I don't know, three or four times. Here. Like, do this, I'm going to take care of you. Like, sure, the circumstances are, are bad, but you've come to me and I'm still a good father. Like, I'm going to take care of you. So they go, and they go into the battle, and sure enough, God's team wins. Surprise, surprise. They win and they, they chase everybody off. And it says all of them die except for the one, the, the, the general, the leader of this army. Sisera has fled away on foot. Again, my imagination, because I work with teenagers probably too often, I just, in my head, I'm like, I'm watching this battle go and this team has chariots over here and these people have swords. Who's going to win? These... So they go and like, oh, no, these people aren't winning. Oh, look, they're all being killed. 
And then this guy who's in charge of it all like, is looking around like, uh, this did not go as planned. They're probably going to be looking for me um, in that chariot because it's decorated and has my name on the wheels. Uh, <clears throat> see ya. And he le- like runs away. At least in my head, he's like trucking it, right? Gone. Like these people may have horses. I don't anymore because I left them behind, but I'm running, I'm going. God does what he says he's going to do. But there's this one guy left. I don't know how often you read through the Old Testament, but a lot of times God is about complete victory. God is about wiping out evil completely. And I think there's one guy that's left over. God still cares about what's going to happen to him. When you and I allow God to work in our lives, then then it should be complete victory over evil. Whole victory. Nothing left except godliness. So he's going to chase down this guy. Ready? Um, Verse 17. This This is my favorite part. But Sisera fled away on foot to the tent of Jael. Now, J-A-E-L, I'm going J-L, like I'm going Jail, like someone from Mississippi pronouncing where their third cousin resides. Jail. All right. So here we are. Sisera fled away on foot to the tent of Jail, the wife of Heber. He was, he was there in the story on purpose. What do you know? God's word, putting stuff in on purpose. All right, so the wife of Heber the Kenite, for there was peace between Jabin the king of Hazor and the house of Heber the Kenite. So Heber has aligned with Canaan. This is his wife, Jael. And Sisera goes there because he knows, well, the man of this house is loyal to me, so I'm going to go there because that's where I'm going to be safe. <laughs> Verse 18, Jael came out to meet Sisera and said to him, Turn aside, my Lord, turn aside to me. Do not be afraid. So he turned aside to her into the tent and she covered him with a rug. Why a rug? I don't know. Why not a blanket? Like, I don't, I don't, I don't know if she already knows like what's about to happen. Like we're going to sweep this under the rug. I don't really know. But verse 19, right? And he said to her, please give me a little water to drink for I'm thirsty. Of course he's thirsty. He's been running for his life across like mostly desert. Of course he's thirsty. She says, she opened a skin of milk and gave him a drink and covered him. And he said to her, stand at the opening of the tent. And if any man comes and asks you, is anyone here? Say no. But Jael, the wife of Heber, took a tent peg and took a hammer in her hand. Then she went softly to him and drove the peg into his temple until it went down into the ground while he was lying fast asleep from weariness. So he died. Sometimes the Bible tells you things that, like, you, you, you should probably already assume. Like, so he died. Like, I, probably. <clears throat> but just in case you were, he, he gone. All right, so verse 22. And behold, Barak was pursuing Sisera. As he was pursuing Sisera, Jael went out to meet him and said to him, Come, I'll show you the man whom you're seeking. So he went into her tent, and there lay Sisera dead with a tent peg in his temple. It's a little violent. It's a lot violent. But imagine with me, right? He's running for his life, has been running for a while, comes to this place where he thinks he'll be safe. Because the man of this house or tent 
um, is, is, is aligned with him. He goes in and he says, I need a place to hide. She, like, it, in my head, it's an immediate thing. She knows who he is. She probably also knows that by the fact that he's running and is tired, that this guy's in a little bit of trouble or a lot of trouble. And she sees him, recognizes him, knows who he is, knows where he's from, knows what he stands for, and says, come aside, my Lord. Come on, come on in. Don't, don't be afraid. Invites him in, covers him up with a rug. I mean, it's the desert. Maybe they don't use a lot of blankets. Maybe, you know, just like, all right, here. Um, so covers him, and then he's like, I'm so, th- I need some, some water, please. Oh, so sorry. Fresh out of, of cool, cold water. Um, what I do have is uh, not a refrigerator, so I have some warm milk for you. Here, you look tired, parched. Have some more milk. I don't know why, but he drinks that. And so, and then, like in my head, she's like, he's like, hey, if someone comes looking for me, tell them I'm not here. Uh-huh. Lullaby. And good. Like, in, at least in my head, she's just like sitting and waiting, like, go to sleep, go to sleep, go to sleep, do it, go to sleep. Okay. <laughs> she softly comes up. Now, look. Some of you have been camping, I'm sure, right? Um, if you've been camping many times and if you buy the tents that I, I, I buy, they come with plastic tent pegs that every time you try to drive them in the ground, they break in half and it's annoying. And so then you go back to the store and you buy the metal ones. And the tent pegs that I have are about this long. That's not what's being used here. These are people um, that are nomadic for the most part. Um, they're either following um, cattle or, or sheep or something where there's gra- they're following those herds that they have so that they can have water and have food. And then when they eat it all there, then they go to a different, they they have to move. That's why they live in tents. Okay. Now at the time, if you're the man of the house, then you would not have the job of setting up the tent at the new location. You'd be like, honey, I need you to set that tent up, please. And she, you, all right. Um, And she would go, and think to yourself, not like camping tent, think more like almost like circus tent, all right? Don't think like tent peg that held it into the sand. Think tent peg, okay? Large. And in my head, she's just like, oh look, how sweetly he's sleeping. Goes and grabs tent peg and hammer and softly goes up to him and does what needs to be done. And not just like a little, but like, that's, that's extraordinary, right? All the way into the ground on the other side. I don't know, I guess he was sleeping on a slot side, like in the rug, rolled up like a burrito or something. Anyway, here's what I think. I think that when she sees him, She knows who he is. She knows what he stands for. She knows that he's an enemy of God's people. She knows that she's married to someone who is is aligned and has pledged his allegiance to this man and his country, but she never did. She knows better because she's been with Hobab and his family that used to be with Moses. She knows about God. She knows the one true God. 
She knows what's right, and she's sure about it. So sure about it that her actions that follow that certainty are extraordinary. She says, here, take care of this problem. You're an enemy of God. Stand against God. I know that God is right. I'm certain of that. So here's what I'm going to do. So he died. For us this morning, the question is, are you sure? Are you sure that God's the one true God that's worth following? And if you are sure, what actions are you taking that show your certainty? Maybe you think to yourself that, I don't know, that, that you've got an excuse. That surely God's not calling you to do something because of who you are. Again, be reminded of who Jael is. Everything really would point to her not doing what she did. But she does it anyway because she knows what's right. Maybe you think that God wouldn't call you to something extraordinary because you're just, maybe you're not the leader. You don't have some standing in society. You don't have don't, whatever. If that's the case, then you're, you're not just missing the point of this story. You're really missing a major theme throughout all of God's word where he takes unlikely people and does extraordinary things in and through their lives for his glory. So if you're sitting there, you're thinking to yourself, like, well, I don't really know what I've got to offer. I don't really know how much I really have. I don't know how much I could do for God. I don't know how much God would even want me to do. I don't even know if God's really calling me to anything extraordinary. Congratulations, you're perfect. And if you don't think that God's calling you to do anything extraordinary, again, go back, maybe read some more of your Bible and realize that God's calling us to do extraordinary things all the time. If you would say that you're certain about God and certain about following him, and you would call yourself a disciple, a follower of Christ, then congratulations, there are things that you should be doing that are absolutely extraordinary. One would be preach the gospel. Paul tells Timothy, preach the word, in season, out of season, be ready all the time to do that. When you and I get to preach the gospel, present the gospel to someone, that's extraordinary. Because a lot of times, God uses what you and I would say to someone when we tell them about the good news of Jesus Christ, and when the Holy Spirit works in their life and they say, you know what, that's exactly what I need. I need a relationship with God. And God would use the words that you and I would say that he prompts us to do. And then they would have eternal life. Like their whole entire, not just life, their eternity is changed. That's extraordinary. You and I get the privilege of sharing the gospel with people if we'll take advantage of the opportunity. On top of that, he also says that as disciples that you and I are supposed to go and make disciples, not just make disciples, but make disciples of all nations. That's pretty extraordinary. That's a high calling. And for every one of us that call ourselves a disciple of Jesus Christ, we have that calling, that extraordinary calling on us. So it's not that God's not calling you to do extraordinary things. It may just be that you're not doing them. I had a friend of mine named Eric Johnson once who told me that he's going to stop praying for opportunities to share the gospel. What kind of dummy are you? Why in the world would you do that? 
do you not like God anymore? He said, no, no, no. I'm going to stop praying for opportunities to share the gospel. Instead, I'm going to pray that I take advantage of the opportunities that I already have. The opportunities are great, but it's just an opportunity until I take action on it. Then it becomes something extraordinary. So what are you doing? Jail in this story very easily could have just shrunk away. We don't know if anybody's with her. We don't know if she has help. We don't know what's going on. Like, it's just, she, I know what's right. I know what's right. And because I know what's right, this is what I'm doing. If you and I truly believe that God's word is right, that God's word is true, there's some things that you and I should be doing. There's some things that you and I should be standing for. Not because we have to, but because we get to. Because let's circle back around to this. If you're still uncertain that God is worth following, that God is worth putting your faith in, let me remind you very quickly of what God has done for you. Because God was so certain about his love for you, so sure that he would take his one and only son, send him to live perfectly, and to die in our place to pay the penalty for our sin and not just stay dead, but resurrect and come back to life, conquering sin and death and giving us this gift of salvation through Jesus Christ where we don't have to do anything. There's no action that comes. We just have to put our, we have to accept the gift by putting our faith in Jesus Christ. Then our actions that follow it are not because we have to, it's because we get to. We get to respond to the love, the certain love that God has for us. And we get to do it in extraordinary ways. We get to be a part of God's story. We get to be a part of the gospel spreading across the world so that people would know him. We have a God who loves us and is certain of that. And because of his certain love and because of his extraordinary action, it is irresistible to me. And I pray that the Spirit would make it irresistible to you to do extraordinary things for Him because you're sure. You can be certain. This morning again, are you sure that God's worth following? Most of us, I think, would say yes. If you are sure, what are you doing? What actions are following that? Maybe today is, is a day where you've been that cultural Christian. You've, you've gone to church a few times. You know some Bible stories. You did the coloring pages maybe. You know some things about Jesus, but you don't really know him. You don't have a relationship. You've never put your faith in him. You know about him, but you don't know him. Then the action for you today is to put your faith in Jesus Christ as your Savior. Be certain that he loves you. Be certain that he's the only one that offers salvation and eternal life. And there's no way to get it besides him. He's the one that you need. Put your faith in him. Maybe you've put your faith in Jesus Christ, but you've never, you've never followed through in obedience with this thing called baptism. Baptism then today you need to do that.
to let people know that you're, you're publicly saying that I, I identify my life with Christ, that the old me is gone and buried and dead and it's a new me because of what Jesus Christ has done in my life. Maybe that's an action you needed to put in place. Maybe it's something else. Maybe you're like Barak, who you, like, all I have to do is, is ask, hey, what's God calling you to do? You know exactly what God's calling you to do. You maybe even know names of people that God's calling you to share the gospel with. You know where you're supposed to go. You know what it is, like, you know what you're supposed to stop doing or start doing. You know what God's calling you to do. But you've just never really acted on it. Today's the day. Put some action behind that. Because God's worthy of that. We're going to have a time of response and a time of, of, of invitation. Zach's going to come and lead us through a song. Um, I'm going to be here down front. If you'd like to talk with me, would love to do that here with you. Um, would also invite you just to take this time just to, to speak and to, to talk with God. I firmly believe that when you and I talk to God, that God speaks back to us. I firmly believe that if you were to be here this morning and say, God, what is it? that you're calling me to do. God, what am I supposed to be doing? I think God would let you know immediately what it is, or at least where to start. Be bold. Be certain about God and who he is and how much he loves us. And then because of that certainty, let your action follow that. Let's pray together. And we'll have a time of response. Father God, we love you. We love what you have already done for us. Because of your word and, and because of your spirit, God, we can be certain that you're God. There is no other God. It's only you. And you loved us enough that while we're still sinners, you sent Christ to die for us. To raise again, to conquer sin and death and offer us a gift of eternal life. God, in, in, in that fact alone, you've done more than we could ever do in return. In that fact alone, we should be inspired. God, to, to give you our all, to do whatever we could to show you how much we love you back. Not because we have to, but because we get to. And God, I pray for people in this place and maybe listening. God, if they don't know you, I pray you'd bother them with, with their need for you and for salvation. Call them with your spirit, your irresistible spirit. God, that they would come to know you and that you would be glorified. For those that, that do know you, God, I pray that you clearly show them what they need to be doing next to start something, to stop something, to follow through with baptism, to whatever it may be. God, you may be calling people to ministry. You may be calling people to missions. You may be calling people to across their lunch table in a few moments to have a conversation about you. God, give them the strength they need. Go before them in battle, just like you did in this story. And you get glory. God, I pray that's what we would see is your glory in extraordinary ways. And we thank you for the privilege of being a part of it. 
Father, bless this time we have to respond to you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.